you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be reading the first seven verses. Dark days were ahead for God's people, especially for the northern kingdom. The Assyrians would invade Palestine from the north and humble Israel. Isaiah looked beyond this time of punishment and saw a bright deliverance. Eventually the Lord would save his people from their oppressors just as he did in the days of Gideon, through whom he annihilated the oppressive Midianites, Judges 6 through 8. The Lord would accomplish this future deliverance through the Messiah, who would rule on David's throne. The words, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, link this messianic prophecy with the prediction of Emmanuel's birth, Isaiah 7:14. The Messiah's royal titles testify to his close relationship to the Father, which portray him as a mighty warrior capable of establishing peace in his realm. Four titles are listed, each of which contain two elements. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 18. John 1, 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, "This This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Open your Bibles to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. I'd like to point out when we're dealing with the the person of Jesus Christ, we are quite obviously speaking of a unique individual, unique in a number of ways, but one of the most significant ways is that this is one person with two natures. Uh, That is the explanation for, for example, Jesus Christ saying publicly to people, Before Abraham, that would be Father Abraham, 1,400 years earlier, probably a lot longer than that, maybe 1,700, before Abraham was, I am. Well, that's a pretty phenomenal statement, particularly if you connect it to passages that we've looked at, such as, well, this is the way Jesus, this is how it came about that Jesus was born. (laughs) Because if this is how it came about that Jesus was born, how could he be, how could he be ammed, I guess you would say, <laughs> during the days of Abraham? And how about when he began his public ministry about 30 years of age? See, there, the Bible is filled with contradictions about this person that they can't be so, except they are. And these are things that we need to understand to the best of our ability and then accept By faith. Today we'll be looking at a number of those and the answer to a number of those. Over the last two weeks, we've looked at the incarnation of the Son of God in two Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. In a sense, both of those Gospels, read carefully, seem to go out of their way to emphasize, to stress our Lord's humanity. I mean, Matthew just throws it out there. What's really important here is the royal lineage of Joseph, his earthly father. 
And on the other hand, Luke offers this remarkably detailed description of a very, very common birth. I mean, it's pretty inconspicuous. The whole world is kind of an uproar as everybody's going to their hometown to get registered because of an imperial decree Caesar Augustus has issued. So everybody has to get registered so everybody can get taxed. It's kind of a modern story. Uh, everybody's going everywhere. Uh, he's born in a little nowhere place, Bethlehem of Judea, which is not, not where Joseph and Mary lived, but it was the place they had to go to be registered. He's, he's laid in a manger, which seems to be some sort of an elevated feeding trough for domestic animals. The only thing they have to, in the way of garments for the newborn, is to wrap him in swaddling clothes and lay him there. They were approached by the most common of men. I mean, the only real witnesses beside the parents seem to be a couple of shepherds, maybe, maybe a bunch of shepherds. They're out watching their flocks by night, and they saw something phenomenal. They heard something even more phenomenal. And then it seems, though, according to Luke's account, more or less out of curiosity, they they said, well, let's go see if this is so. And when they returned from seeing it, they returned glorifying and praising God for all they'd seen. But the Gospel of John is different. And it's our focus this morning because it doesn't stress, first and foremost, our Lord's humanity. It stresses his deity, but not at the cost of his humanity. But I think it does so to wonder, to, to, to magnify the wonder of his grace and this phenomenal gift of the Son. The Lord sent his only begotten, much loved, beloved Son into the world to pay our sin debt, to reconcile his people to himself in the midst of a world of lost sinners. And he continues to do that. There's almost a sense in which the gospel of John was intentionally written last, to kind of keep, save the best for last, save, save the, more, the fuller picture for last. But it's also the easiest to understand as far as the language goes, it's, it's very, very clear writing in the Greek, and because of that, in English, which is very fortunate for us because we don't read Greek. Right? There's almost a sense that it's meant to convey the wonder of the, evangel- of the evangel, of the gospel, in the most brilliant way. So keeping your place here, turn with me to First John. Little books just for Revelation. I'd like to point out how John describes this event in his first epistle. He says in 1 John 1 that what I'm writing to you about is that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we've actually looked upon. That which we've actually touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's going to say now that that life, the word of life was made manifest. It was made clear and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, the eternal life, which was with the father 
and then was made manifest very clear to us. These are things which we have seen, which we have heard, that we proclaim also to you. And we're doing this in order that you too may have fellowship with us. And while that's important, it's because our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And when you join with us, your joy would be complete. It really is. It is a wonderful introduction to that epistle. And Lord willing, sometime in the next year, we will try to do a detailed study of that particular epistle. But this morning, we want to look at the incarnation of the Son of God in the Gospel of John. John's Gospel, I truly believe, was written much later than the others. D.A. Carson says he thinks it's written in the 80s. Now, if it's written in the 80s and Jesus went to the cross in the early 30s, then it's 50 years later. If John the Baptist, I'm sorry, if, uh, if Paul the Apostle was martyred about 62 to 64 A.D. under Nero, then it's 15 to 17 years after that, at least. So the Apostle John has had a lot of time to think, to meditate, to ponder, to pray, to be led of the Spirit, to experience the Christian life in the first century. He's had a lot of experiences that, that impact how he thinks about these things. And when he puts together this gospel under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we're given a phenomenally extensive account of the Incarnation. However, when he gets to the very end of his gospel, not the very end, but the almost end, we get to chapter 20 of his gospel. You don't need to turn there. In verses 30 and 31, he says, you know, this is it's like he said, I know I've written you 20, I've written 19 chapters, I'm finishing up a 20th chapter now. But Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that aren't in this book. They're just not here. And they're not in any of the other gospels either. He said, but these things were written so that you might believe that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, the Christ, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what he's saying, because he ends the gospel that way, what he's saying from the beginning of this gospel is I'm writing this so that men would believe that Jesus actually is God's Messiah. And that he actually is the Son of God. And if you would believe that he's God's Messiah and that he is the Son of God, through believing that, you'll have eternal life. Now this is an others-focused gospel. And we ought to be thinking about the gospel in our own lives as primarily others-focused. Believing changes how we are. Others wonder about that. And the only explanation is the Lord has done something. We're new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new over and over and in more and more areas. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of this day 
of this gathering of the saints, this gathering of your people, this gathering of families that are called to this place before this passage to hear this message for their good and your glory. We pray, Lord, you will use this message to those ends and to greater ends, if it's your will, that you would receive all the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. The first 18 verses of John's Gospel are an introduction to the man called Jesus. He's the son of Mary, the son of Joseph. He's born in Bethlehem under those unusual circumstances we looked at. He's raised in Nazareth of Galilee. And you know, none of that John feels like he needs to convey. Probably because everybody kind of knows that story. And certainly everybody in this room probably already knows that story. But everybody in his day probably at least had the outline there. They certainly weren't all saved. But they kind of, they kind of knew the basics of that. His gospel was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he relays primarily events that began happening 30 years after the Incarnation. But it doesn't begin there. It begins before time itself. It begins with the greatest miracle of all time. And that's really stressed in verse 14 when we read that the word became flesh. And that's really the central subject of today's message. The word became flesh. Now look with me at how this individual is introduced in verse 1. Look at the name he's given. In the beginning was the Word. The only person in Scripture who ever refers to Jesus, the Messiah, as the Word is John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Seems like he's really trying to cover all the bases there, doesn't it? We move down to verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side, the only begotten God. Some versions would say no one has ever seen the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. Our text reads, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. But he says he has made him known. He's the one who's explained him. He's the one who's declared him. He's the one, the the Greek word is he's exegeted him. He's the one that's taken the text and explained it so others can understand. It's not that he came and spoke to us, meaning Jesus. It's not that Jesus came to us and spoke to us about the Father. though Though he did. It's not that he came and spoke to us on behalf of the Father. But of course he did that as well. But the prophets all did that. The apostles all did that. I do that regularly. I certainly do it on Sunday mornings. No, what he's doing is he is he is the voice of the Father. He's speaking as the embodiment of the speech of God. He's the personification of the voice of God. He actually is the revelation of God. He actually is the word of God. So what sort of person is this? Back up to verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. 
The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the first thing John wants us to understand is the nature of this individual. And the first thing he calls to our attention is he pre-existed the beginning. He was there before anything began. In other words, when everything began, he already was. Was is a word of being. He didn't come into being. He already was. In fact, doesn't that look remarkably like Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created basically everything, then a whole series of the steps by which he did it. We have exactly the same thing, the exact word order here. Logically, then, if you would say, well, if he was there then, then he must be God. Well, then how do you account for the fact it says, in the beginning was the word, and he was with God. You see, if you read this carefully, it it raises some questions, but of course it answers those questions. But, But clearly there's a distinction there. Within the Godhead, there's a distinction. Now, because we're a little more literate about such things, we understand there are persons in the Godhead. But this is revelation that there are persons in the Godhead. The Genesis 1-1 passage used a plural noun and a singular verb when it said God created. So we, there was always somehow just something, something's different about this individual that they're creating. And one of the differences is there's multiple persons in the Godhead. There is that distinction. And then verse 2 comes along and tells us he was in the beginning with God. Now that certainly underscores the reality that there's two persons involved here. King James says the same was in the beginning with God. Well, if he was in the beginning with God, what was his relationship? When all that creating was doing, all that beginning was going on, what was his relationship with everything that was beginning? In other words, what's his relationship with creation? That's where verse 3 comes in. Verse 3 tells us, all things were made, or all things came into being through him. Everything came into being through him. What's his relationship with everything? Well, all of it came through him. There are no exceptions. All of it means all of it. Everything that came into being, came into being through him. Think about it this way. There's two two categories. One category is things that have always existed. How many things are in that category? One. What's in the other category? Things that once never existed, but then came into existence. Everything else. He's in the first category. And everything else was created through him. It's, it's pretty simple when we talk about it that way. But the implications, again, get, going to get quite serious as we go along here. That verse continues to say, without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing that ever existed, nothing that exists now, nothing that will ever exist, came into being except through the Son, through the Word. 
when, you know, we've, uh, we spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians, and we're spending a lot of time in 2 Corinthians, so it's, this goes way back. But in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, you might turn there. Uh, Paul's writing those Corinthians. You know, that's a church that's got every problem every American church has right now. And our church as well. I mean, all kinds of issues are going on there. And he keeps coming back to bedrock truths. And in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, he says, Speaking of God, there's one God, the Father, of whom or from whom are all things. And, and we for him. In other words, he made all things and he made us for him. And there's one Lord Jesus through whom are all things and through whom we live. The life we live, we live by faith in Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. So everything originates with God but comes into being through God the Son. Now, you think we're deep now. We're getting ready to go a lot deeper. And so just kind of follow along. And it, I think it really will make sense. In the, in the council of the Godhead, and I can leap ahead, you, you understand, there's three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is a council among them. There is one will among them. They have agreed upon this. This is the, this is the perfect plan because God designed it. But in the counsel of God, God the Father determines all things. He ordains all things that happen. James would tell us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. One of the verses that we love is Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good for those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. So God determines all things that are going to happen. But all those things that happen come into being through or by the Son. In other words, the Son brings about the determinations of the Father. The the Father determines what will be. The Son gives those things expression through creation. And the creation of things, whether they're visible or invisible, well, I can look over the, the I can look over the crowd, and I can say, you know, I, I want to think everybody in this room is a spiritual being in Christ, but I can't tell the difference. Not just looking at you. If I knew you better, I'd have some better idea. But I, it would never be absolutely essential. I mean, absolutely certain to me. God doesn't have that problem at all. There are invisible things. The Son gives expression through creation to visible and invisible things. The Father determines what will be. The Son gives that. So it's true of everything. The sun that's shining outside came about through the Son of God. The moon, the stars, the great fish that swallowed Jonah that God had prepared that allowed Jonah a deep in the sea to say salvation is of the Lord in Jonah 2.9. Every molecule that's ever existed was determined to exist by the Father and brought into being through the Son. And it's true of invisible things. We know they're there, but we can't see them. Right now there's radio waves and TV waves and you know, probably the most mysterious at all to me, there's Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. Uh, I have no idea what it, I know what it does when it does it. 
But I really have no idea how any of that works. It's true of everything visible, too, from sea monsters to ladybugs, from California condors to hummingbird chicks. All of it came into being through the sun. It was true of Adam. It was true of his, his lady Eve. It's true of all his descendants. It's true of all flesh. And it's true of you, individually. Ultimately, the reality that you are here, that you are anywhere, is sourced in the determination of God the Father and, you, and came into being through God the Son. Now, think about that and look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, the word that does all that and did all that and does all that became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he did, John says, we saw his glory. We've seen his glory. It was the glory as of the only son from the father. It was a glory that was full of grace. It's a glory that was full of truth. We live in an age today which there seems to be a, a great dearth of truth or grace. In fact, we don't seem to think there is such a thing as truth anymore. Everybody has their own truth, their own Oprah truth. Your truth and my truth. But there is one who is truth. John knew him personally. The person who was with God, who was God, the one who brought all things into being, including all flesh, verse 14 tells us, became flesh himself. Now, what's meant by flesh? Are you more than your body? And it, it's an interesting, it's a philosophical question, I realize, but you obviously ought to start with your bodies are different, but basically they're all the same pieces, parts. They're just maybe hooked together. They're all hooked together the same way, but they certainly look different from my perspective. But you're all individuals, too. And that has nothing to do with how many fingers and toes you got or where all your organs are located. There, there's, there's internal things going on there that make you uniquely you. And we understand from Scripture that when the body that we're looking at turns to dust, there's something about you that's still going to be there awaiting the day when that body is going to be resurrected and reunited. So what's really going So what's the flesh here? What's, what's meant by this flesh? The Puritans would say, well, that's, that, that's the reasonable soul within you. That, that's the inner rational man in you that, that can think and can relate. And that, that's the basis upon which God gives you a moral sense and a conscience and through which he draws you, through the circumstances he orchestrates in your life. So that you may just look like a human being, but actually you're a human being with a soul inside that body. And when the spirit and the body are separated, that's what we call physical death. But that's not spiritual death. There's more to come. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. He didn't become the word. He always was the word. But in verse 14... The word became flesh, which means he wasn't always flesh. He actually became flesh. 
Now, if he was the word eternally with God, and he's the same as God because of that, how is it that at a certain point in the fullness of time in history, God sent him and this creator, this one who through, through creation came, actually became what he'd never been? I told you it was going to get deep. How'd that happen? Far more important, what does it mean that it happened? Well, we kind of know how it happened. The Gospels tell us that. And the Gospels give us some context and some consequences. And You look at the consequences in Matthew's Gospel, it's a whole lot of little kids get murdered. You look at the consequences in Luke's gospel and there's a couple of families involved there and an old guy, an old woman in the Jerusalem, the temple and, and they're, they're, they're just rejoicing like crazy because they long to see this day and now it's happened. And that remarkable scene with the shepherds and then later with the magi coming to the east, I mean, there are things going on that are bigger than the world knows about. But they're all being orchestrated by God. That passage about the fullness of time is from Galatians 4, 4, and 5. You don't need to turn there, but I would just point out it means when, when the Word became flesh, Paul writes to the Galatians, he was born, not made, of a woman. He was born not through a woman. The woman did bear him. He gestated like any other infant. And he passed through the birth canal like any other infant. But But he was made and born distinctly different. He has a human nature. He never had a human nature before. He has a human nature from that point on. He actually has a human body. A body that was prepared for him. A body prepared for him so it could die for us. His human nature... Seemingly was of the substance of his mother. Certainly not of his father. It's a virgin conception, not a virgin birth. And we are God's children by faith in the words and the works of this person who has two natures, one divine and one human. Why did all that happen? Well, turn to Hebrews 2. And look with me at verse 14 and 15. If you're Christ's child, if you're in the family of God, is God your father because you have faith in Jesus Christ, his son, and his finished work? Then when the author to Hebrews says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, well, all of us do, whether we're children of God or not, but he's talking about children of God. We do have flesh and blood. But to redeem his people, his children, he had to share in that flesh and blood. So he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh, is what they say. Why would he do that? He did that so that through death, He could destroy the one who has the power of death over us. That is the devil. And and then deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery to the devil. Why did the word become flesh? So he could be so identified with us that when he gave that flesh, when he gave himself up as our sin debt, redemption price, it would satisfy the wrath of God the Father. But a little more about that flesh. Turn with me to Romans 8 verse 3. He is flesh and blood, but he has no earthly father. His human nature is entirely the substance of his mother, except in one characteristic. And that characteristic is described in Romans 8.3. Because Mary, like Joseph, like me, like you, is born under the law. And the wages of sin under the law is death. Romans 8 verse 3 tells us God has done something the law couldn't do. The law, God's done what the law weakened by the flesh could not possibly do. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not in sinful flesh. In the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. Now you and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. If you'd seen Jesus Christ walking along the road, he would have looked, felt, smelled, sounded, acted like any other human being. Except every molecule in his physical body was sinless flesh. But it was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't see it. But by in doing that, God condemned sin in the flesh that through the death of our sin bearer, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, I'm, I'm conscious of the time. And we're, we're closing in on the end here. And i got to tell you, honestly, we're reaching the limit of what we actually can wrap our minds around. Maybe we passed through the limit some time ago. I mean, I, I did a couple of times working on that, but the Lord enables us to understand a great deal. But there's a great deal we can't understand. It's, 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 it's wisdom reserved to God, and maybe he'll share it later. Maybe he won't. Uh, the idea that when we're with him, we'll know everything, I doubt it. I think infinity, eternity, is for learning about what a glorious God we serve. And learn about the, the love of God. But let's make a little effort here. How can any member of the Godhead, which is all spirit, I mean, God's a spirit, that's why nobody's seen God at any time, actually become flesh? Now, that, that is a fair question. I mean, that, that is the big question. That's the ultimate question. How can he become genuine human flesh? I mean, the real thing. Well, who was the first person who ever asked that? It was the person it was first announced to, Mary. And she very specifically said, you know, how can this happen? How's it going to happen, really? She didn't disbelieve it. She just, how, how in the world is that going to happen? She said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the answer came very clearly. The Holy Spirit, we looked at this last week, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And because that's the way it's going to happen, therefore the child to be born will be called holy. He will be the Son of God. Does that explain it to you? Well, that's God's answer. And if we can't understand it, then it has to be a miracle. And it is, it is the greatest of miracles. And if you can accept it as that, then everything else follows. So that's how it happened. What does it mean now? What does it mean that, that he had this divine nature, now all of a sudden he's got a human nature? Doesn't that make him kind of a composite being? He remains the person he always was. The second person of the Godhead. He's not a combination of two persons. He's still one person. He's the son of God and he's the son of Mary. As I began the message, he's one person with two natures. And because the other nature is there with him, they don't pollute They don't intermingle. He's one person with two natures. He didn't humanize his deity. He didn't deify his humanity. This is a unique individual. And so anything that happened to one nature is tied inexorably, immutably to the other nature. And that immutably is really important because God is immutable. He doesn't change in any sense. So, for instance, when Peter Peter preaches in Acts 3.15 and accuses the people of having killed the author of life, well, the author of life is the one through whom all life came. That would be the second person of Godhead. But you killed him. What did they kill? Did they kill his deity? Did they kill his humanity? Did they kill they killed him? How do you reconcile that? How about first Corinthians two eight? If the rulers of this world had known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. How could you possibly crucify the Lord of glory? He's the He created everything. But you did. How did that happen? It had to happen in the divine counsel of God and had to be brought about by the Son and through the Son to accomplish a greater purpose than we can imagine. Or how about when Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5 and tells us that there's only one mediator between God and man. Who could possibly be a mediator between God and man? Well, he answers it. The God-man, Jesus Christ. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. You're looking for another mediator? There isn't one. You think maybe you can pile up your good works, your honest living, your best efforts, and say, that ought to count for something? It counts for nothing. It's dung, the Apostle Paul said. Let me call your attention to one more passage. Turn to Revelation 19. 
How significant is this individual? In Revelation 19, I told you the only time he's ever referred to as the Word is by the Apostle John. Revelation 19, verse 11, is one of those kind of scary passages. A lot of, a lot of Revelation is kind of scary. And depending upon your understanding of end-time events, it can get terrifying. The comfort is knowing who's orchestrating everything and what the purpose is. And when we get to Revelation 19.11, the Apostle John says, I saw in this heavenly vision, heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. You want to be on the right side of that one. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The Word who was in the beginning with God and created all things, God created all things through him, is the one that's going to come again and set everything right. Having redeemed his children, today, tomorrow, 10,000 years, a million years from now, he will return and gather all of them to himself. And in that comfort, we can look at a day like today that memorializes, actually tomorrow, that memorializes, though it could be any date, the fullness of time in which the Lord sent His Son to accomplish exactly that. Is there any doubt the Lord accomplished the purpose for which He was sent? Let us pray. Our Father, our God, our Creator, Redeemer, Defender, and Friend, what a great and a glorious message it is that the greatest miracle of all time, greater even than creation itself, is that deity took on humanity in order to rec reconcile a fallen humanity. Your children, chosen before the foundation of the world, into a right relationship with you for all eternity. We bow in wonder before the glory of your wisdom. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.